the fact that he didn't just do it once, the fact that he has released version after like at least three different versions of these films with different tweaks and modifications. Mm-hmm. In medicine, there's a there's a condition called I think body dysmorphic disorder or body dysmorphic syndrome, where you think something is wrong with your body, and even though your body is perfectly fine psychologically, you think your body is wrong. You think an arm is too long or it's too short, or you think your your face isn't symmetrical. And you can never be content with the way your body looks, up to the point where some people have plastic surgery to correct a problem that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, it never goes away. I started to think that George Lucas has this condition for the Star Wars movies, that he's just going to continue to tweak and modify them when nothing is wrong. I'm a Jedi, like my father before me. Everything's perfectly all right now. We're fine. We're all fine here now. Thank you. How are you? Welcome back to Dead Bothan Spies, a podcast that's not so much about dead Bothan spies as it is the whole sci-fi fantasy franchise from which the obscure Bothan reference originated. It's about Star Wars. I'm Ryan Daly, and this week I'm joined by Nathaniel Wayne, the creator of the YouTube series Council of Geeks. Nathaniel and I will be talking about the Star Wars Special Editions. Before that, though, I want to give a shout-out to Greg Araujo for his support of this show on Twitter, as well as Elliot Stafford, Bobby Anderson, Justin Dow, Liz Swick, and Gianna Fergosi for liking the Dead Bath and Spies Facebook page. Greg brought up an interesting point after my second episode, which focused on the prequels. He wondered if material that could be covered in a prequel might be revealed through extended flashbacks in a sequel, such as how Vito Corleone's backstory was shown in The Godfather Part Two. Yes, I think that is the best and probably the only way Star Wars could have shown Anakin Skywalker's fall to the dark side. The rise of Darth Vader would have to be shown not in its own film, but in a flashback story that parallels an adventure set after The Empire Strikes Back and progresses the story of Luke Skywalker. That way, because of the built-in frame, it wouldn't make sense to watch the origin story before the classic films. It would definitely be a sequel that depicts part of the story set before the main adventure. That, I think, is the only way to show Anakin's fall without spoiling his biologic connection to Luke. And while I'm on the subject again, I thought of another prequel that pretty much works, and that is the film Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. The TV show Twin Peaks detailed the investigation into the murder of Laura Palmer, but we never see the murder happening, and the killer isn't identified until something like 15 episodes into the series. The film Fire Walk With Me came out after the show and was clearly a prequel. It showed Laura Palmer's tragic and a bit overly complicated death. Chronologically, you can watch the film first, and it segues pretty well into the TV show. There are some continuity gaffes, but it's not too bad. 
However, you're not supposed to watch it before you watch the series, and I think the director, David Lynch, took enough overt or incidental steps to ensure that the audience didn't. First, the movie was made after the show, and it has a subtitle. If a random person read the title, Twin Peaks, colon, Fire Walk With Me, they would probably assume this is a continuation of Twin Peaks, and watch the TV series first. Second, while it's not perfect, the film does stand on its own, apart from the TV show. There are certainly some parts that would confuse a viewer who hasn't watched the TV show, but you find those same issues in almost every David Lynch film. And if you watch the film and never see the TV show, then you're not spoiling the mystery because you're not aware there is a mystery to ruin. So Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me works as a prequel. You can watch it and enjoy it without watching the TV show. But if you know the show exists, you'd probably be inclined to watching the TV show first and treat the film as a sequel. Moving on. In 1997, 20th Century Fox and Lucasfilm re-released the Star Wars trilogy in theaters. But these were not the movies that fans had grown up with. These were different. They were special. Special editions that included improved audio and visual effects, previously deleted scenes now inserted into the film, and some brand new, quote, cutting-edge, unquote, computer graphics. When I heard about this, I was hella pumped. This got me so excited. I was in high school at the time, and I loved Star Wars, and any news was good news. Plus, I was going to get to see the first two films in the theater? Yeah. And they were going to look and sound better than ever? Yeah. And George Lucas was going to include bonus footage? Hell yeah! And after I saw the special editions, for a time, I was really happy with them. Then I began to hate them, and everything they represented. Most of the hate was fueled by Lucas's insistence that the special editions were the definitive versions of the film. And more importantly, according to Lucas and Fox, the only versions of the film. That fostered a whole lot of resentment in me, and in most fans, I think, because it felt like, well, like a betrayal of sorts. Like the artist responsible for creating these films that I loved was now telling me the art was flawed and wrong, and I was wrong for liking it. Yeah, that made me plenty resentful. But I've softened a bit on these versions, enough to spend a couple episodes talking about them with Nathaniel Wayne. And now, here's the first part of our conversation about the Star Wars Special Editions. I don't think fans would be holding Lucas's feet to the coals as much as we do over the special editions if he wasn't insisting that they supersede the original cut. Yeah. I think that is where he really earned fans' ire. Because I think if he just gave us the version of the film that we all grew up with mm -hmm. and that we always loved mm -hmm. and had this other version that he tinkered with and also put out that we could take or leave, mm -hmm. I think everyone would have gone... Oh, that's fine. That's fair. Hey, George, it's your movie. Have fun. But the fact that he denied us, and that sort of comes back to the how much ownership does the artist have? Because once the art is out there, yeah, you don't own it completely anymore. Because now it's part of the especially if it blows up mm -hmm. and gets big, it's part of the culture. It's part of it's a collective experience now. It does not just belong to you anymore, and. For you to say that other people's experienced, loved version of this movie 
is no longer valid right. because you feel like adding some more effects, right. that feels like a middle finger. Right. And there's the whole notion of retconning any type of piece of history or established work of art or literature is always met with a lot of scrutiny and there are multiple sides to it because on one hand it changes it changes your memory of the experience mm-hmm. but it doesn't change the experience you still got to watch those original movies you still got to enjoy them so it shouldn't matter if he goes back and changes them now but it does because the memory of that experience was really profound to you so it's it's really difficult I also I also I, I need if he insists, because part of his argument is also that he insists that these were the versions that he would have released if he had the technology and the time and the money to do so originally, and I gotta call bullshit. I think he went into this with more or less pure intentions. I have a feeling that it was proposed, hey, why don't we re-release these in theaters? And his first thought was, well, we got to go back to the print and make sure it's theater ready. And it probably started out as, oh, well, that looks a little, we can fix that. But, Mm -hmm. But... he wouldn't leave it at that. And what he failed to take into account, Mm -hmm. and what I think is the problem with this as a general notion, Mm -hmm. is that he is not the same person now that he was when he made these movies. And in many ways, a movie is a time capsule. It's a time capsule of the people involved at the time it was made. And if those same people assembled now Mm -hmm. with that same script, it wouldn't be the same movie. You know, aside just obvious aging of the actors, it just wouldn't be because it, it's it's frozen in time where who everybody was mm-hmm. at that point. <laughs> I've basically broken it down by movie, and every and things fall into one of three categories: stuff I think was a bad idea, mm-hmm. stuff that I think actually works because mm-hmm. there is some, yep. and stuff that it, I either have mixed feelings about. Or I have no strong opinion on was a but was a big enough change that we should talk about it anyways. Okay. Um, the first one that I kind of want to call out, which is not a massive one, but it was the first one. I was like, wait, what? Uh, Stormtroopers on dewbacks. Yeah. And to me, that's that's like a red flag that encapsulates pretty much all the ones that don't work. Mm-hmm. Which is that okay? It's kind of a cute idea, but there's absolutely no reason you. It makes no sense. How does that even work? Did they land following the pot and there just happened to be dewbacks that they hopped onto? Did they go all the way to Moss Eisley to, to, to the dewback ranch and then take them all the way out? To, I mean, it, it, may, it fails so many logic tests just so you can have a lumbering beast. I haven't seen the Blu-ray, so I don't know if they've cleaned it up or, or improved it, but even my memory is that as soon as that as soon as that came out, the effects did not look great. Like they just didn't no. age well. It looked. I mean, and and really that's silly. that's going to be a recurring thing that, at least for my part, I'm probably not even going to bring up whether or not the effect looks good or not because I think across the board, the digital effects added <laughs> don't look good. Certainly now. No. And at the time, it was arguable that at the very least they didn't match yeah. the aesthetic yeah. of the film. Next one is one that I'm mixed on, mm-hmm. and that is the additions to Moz Eisley. Yeah. This is one where I can get behind the theory. 
Yeah. Because because of budgetary restrictions, Moss Eisley was not the bustling commerce travel center that story-wise and as far as George Lucas wanted to portray, it should have been. Mm-hmm. So there is a valid point to be made in terms of ma- of making it more bustling, filling it out. Mm-hmm. The way that it was done, I don't think is particularly successful. Partly because of the graphics not looking good, I think even at the time, especially that panning shot. Yeah. And the other thing is it... it ended up just cluttering the shot because while there's a there's a, a good reason to have more stuff to make the city seem busier, mm-hmm. because you shot it with what you had, mm-hmm. all you can do is just cram more crap into the into the shot, which just makes it messy. I think if you just took out the the Rontos. I think that's the name of like the giant dinosaur things that a yeah. Jawa is riding. There's two of them. There's the one where the Jawa falls off because a speeder bike almost runs into it. And it there's, the one back, that, yeah. there's one that just walks in front of the screen and obscures your view of Obi-Wan when he's talking to the stormtroopers. Yeah. If you took out those two things, if you just took out those dinosaurs <laughs> and left all the other like additions, like the gra- even as much as the graphics don't look as good, I think that would have been an improvement because you would have gotten a sense of the scale of the city and how big and important it is. This is supposed to be a difference for Luke, that he is going into a bigger city and this is leading him into a, a larger galaxy, a larger universe. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's his first step to a much bigger world. I mean, there's a number of things in the cantina. They, they swapped out shots of, of which aliens they saw, which I can't remember the specifics of it now, but it, it did bug me. But they, they took out werewolf masks and yeah. changed them to you to make certain. I thought and it was I liked fun, those. Though. I love those. Those the, those were great, and they changed them for things that looked dumb. So I don't like those changes. I mean, the, there's that. But if if we're in the cantina, that that brings us to the elephant in the room, which is Greedo. And this is where I think, in particular, we see that George Lucas was a different person when he approached this. Because I think this is all about who he was at the time. Yeah. And that he's an older person, he's a father, perhaps a grandfather at the time that he's doing this. And he has an image of what he thinks a hero should be. And Mm -hmm. Han Solo shouldn't be somebody who guns down an enemy needlessly. Um, that he needed to put Han, in his view, in the right by having him shoot second. Yeah. Now, and that, that just... <clears throat> this is an interesting one to bring up for a couple of reasons. Because it's been further tweaked... Yes. ...with later... To the point that with the Blu-ray, it's time that they now shoot at virtually the same time. Mm-hmm. Which Lucas is now arguing was his original attempt. And I may even be prepared to buy that because my memory of that shooting was never that Han shot first. Mm-hmm. It was just that there's a flash and there's there's confusion and at the end of it, Greedo's down. <laughs> my memory of that was never clearly, oh, Han shot him. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, when I first saw the version where Greedo shoots first, which is very clearly what happened in the, in the mm-hmm. first version of Special Edition, mm-hmm. 
the reason that it bothered me was not actually what it did to the character of Han, but it just made Greedo the world's worst shot. I mean, he's, he's three feet from the guy. And he misses by three feet. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. I mean, I'm looking... He would have done better to throw his gun at Han. <laughs> Suddenly, I'm looking at Greedo's eyes and going, I mean, do you have messed up bug vision? Is there, Do you have no death perception? <laughs> what is going on here? And, and that actually threw me off more than what it did to the character of Han. But the fact that that gap mm-hmm. in Who Shot First that Lucas has since whittled down. And even if I buy that the original intent was shooting at the same time, Mm -hmm. when you did your first pass at this for special edition, you were obviously not cleaning up to make it clear. You made Greedo shoot first. You were changing the characters. Yes. You were changing the story. So even if you tell me originally it was shot at the same time, not Han shot first, you still changed that blatantly. Right. So, and that really shows your head is not in the same space. Yeah. So, you know, depending on whether you want to believe that Han did actually shoot first in the original version, maybe that's how big of a gulf is there between him then and when he was doing these revisions. But the gulf is there. Mm-hmm. I think it's just, maybe it's debatable how wide it is, mm-hmm. depending on whether you want to believe him that the original version was the same time. But there, there's still a big gap here. Yeah. Then there's the added Jabba the Hutt scene. Solo! Solo! Right here, Jabba. I've been waiting for you. Have you not? You didn't think I was going to run, did you? Ah, my boy. There are times you disappoint me. Why haven't you paid me? Why did you have to fry poor Greedo like that? After all, we've been through together. Look, Jabba, next time you want to talk to me, come see me yourself. Don't send one of these twerps. The scene was shot, and he is never going to convince me that he took the scene out because he didn't like what Jabba looked like, or that's not what he envisioned Jabba to be. No, you didn't know what Jabba the Hutt was going to be, and you just filmed some guy wearing a fur coat, and you felt like that, that wasn't a problem with the special effects. No, the reason that scene had to be taken out was that it doesn't work in that part of the movie. That was just a natural cut. So the multiple reasons the, the scene doesn't work. The dialogue is all repetitive. It's some in some cases it's line for line what we just heard in the scene with Han and Greedo. It's it's a completely right. redundant scene. It ruins Job of the Hut. Like just if you look at the way they talk to each other, this isn't somebody I'm afraid of, and I don't understand why Han is in a rush to pay this guy back. He's really accommodating, almost apologetic in the way he talks to Han. Yeah, he he seems he seems more um, kind of middle management. He doesn't seem like yeah. the big scary gangster that we got in Return of the Jedi. Absolutely. Um, third, perhaps most importantly, it does ruin the reveal of the Millennium Falcon. Mm. Because the Millennium Falcon is in the background of that shot, and we see it before Luke famously sees it and says, what a piece of junk, when the music swells. That is our reveal yep. of this thing. And then fourth, yeah, just the, the graphics are awful. Yeah. Um, and they, they looked horrible, and he has improved them over time. I still don't think... I mean, they still don't look... It's... There's an argument to be made in, in any given specific situation whether practical is better than CGI. Yeah. But I will always contend mm-hmm. that if we have reason to immediately compare our practical to a CGI, mm-hmm. the CGI is going to look worse and wrong. Yeah. And I will cite Job of the Hut, 
mm-hmm. for that. And I will also cite the orcs in the Hobbit movies yep. for that because the orcs in the Hobbit movies do not look like the orcs in the Lord of the Rings movies. No, no. They just don't. Whether or not you consider they look bad, they sure as hell don't look like the same thing. No. I think, giving Lucas the benefit of the doubt, I think he included the Jabba the Hutt scene because they had this film, it was just sort of, hey, this will be an extra treat for the audience. They've never seen this before. This will be something extra for them to enjoy. But we need to make Jabba the Hutt look like Jabba the Hutt. It it was admittedly the idea that they could drop the job that we know right. in over this actor right. was kind of a novelty yeah. at the time. It was it it was interesting. Yeah. It didn't work, right. but and ultimately to insist that that scene is somehow more valid than the original cut, which doesn't include it, shows a lack of understanding of like how your story flows. Dude. Yeah, like, and and sort of coming back to what you said, you know it. Regardless of whether he thought, you know, I would love to include the scene, but I can't. He obviously made the decision to drop it mm-hmm. and then edited and built the movie around the fact that it's not there. Mm-hmm. So to then reinsert it, it doesn't suddenly, it's not like we were looking at a puzzle. Oh, we're missing a piece. Oh, now everything falls into place. No, the puzzle had been redesigned to fill that hole. Right. There's now no hole to be filled. Right. So that's why we got stuff like you, like we said, that all the information is redundant mm-hmm. and the fact that the Millennium Falcon reveal is killed. If that scene was in the original movie, the reveal would have been done somehow in that scene. Yeah, the, yeah, the pieces yeah. would have been changed to... to exactly, make but because it, it wasn't there, the rest of the movie, it's it's like... it's. It's scabbed over. Mm-hmm. Well, it's almost the same thing with the additional scene later on with Big Starklighter. There's nothing wrong with the scene. It's but a complete pace killer. It is. What I love about Star Wars so much is that from start to finish, it is so tight. The way it is structured is damn near flawless in how we go from suspense to suspense to cliffhanger. There, there's um, nothing wasted yeah. in that right. first movie, especially. Right. The scene where they're meeting again only works if you saw Biggs back on Tatooine, which was a scene that was conceived of in in like the early cuts of the movie, and I don't think they ever finished filming it. I think they only got part of that, so he couldn't have included that part. Yeah. At the time I first saw this thing, in 97, one of its initial editions, I could not completely lie to myself, but I could kind of through rose-colored glasses, gloss over some of this stuff. Like the like how bad the Jabba scene was, I was kind of like, eh, okay. But even at the time I saw it, that big yeah. scene, I was like, why is that there? Yeah. I mean, that that is the epitome of something you leave on the cutting room floor. Mm-hmm. There's no new information. It kills the pacing. It's boring. Right. It, no point. Um, so getting back to the things that I had in the... Ah, we have, we have a... We've got two positive additions... Okay. Uh, in a row here. When they are on the the Death Star. Yeah. And Han is starts chasing stormtroopers. And he goes around the corner. Mm-hmm. And in the original cut, he goes around the corner. It's just a dead end. And the, and the like five stormtroopers. And the troopers he was chasing have simply turned around. But he, you know, he has this reaction of, ah! And runs back the other way. They replace that dead end with a com- with a hangar full of stormtroopers, which is a much better. Given what Han's reaction was, that's a better thing for him to be giving that reaction to. I wish they had gone a little bit closer down the middle. I like that they added more stormtroopers to increase the threat because it does sort of explain 
his like jaw dropped wide-eyed like screaming and turning around and running i don't think we needed to see a hundred stormtroopers in a fleet of tie fighters hanging they, in the background maybe they overdid it but maybe, I, i'm still I'm, yeah, that's an addition maybe I'm okay 10 with. more just sitting around <laughs> or something like that but yeah okay um so, okay that um the x-wing takeoff on yes. the planet, yeah. because in the original version, there's just they 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 look like from Space Invaders these little things, and they just yeah, <laughs> just dots of white. Yeah, it's 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 like 1976 video game quality effect. It's I remember as a kid thinking, is that them? Because it's just these blurry little. So to see the X wings properly lift up, take off, and go out, you know what I. That's because that that is a case I think you can legitimately say the original effect yeah. was terrible. Yes. Not just a case of oh I think we can do better. No 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 the original effect was objectively bad. Yes, and from that point on, like all of the I didn't I never really had a problem with the original effects during that battle, but I also don't have a, a problem with the way they cleaned it up. Yeah. And some of the like improved visuals and everything. So all of the stuff in that battle I'm fine with. I don't have a problem with that. I like some of it. It's it's a cleaner, funner viewing experience. And yeah, some of the close-ups of the vehicles when they're about to attack, I really enjoy it. For for Star Wars, I think a lot of the effects that were cleaned up were improvements. Yeah. And I think, I, I agree with you. I think his intention was pure and the ideas were came from the right place and he got carried away. Yeah. And I think the, the points where he made changes to the movie and changes to the story were pitfalls. Yeah. And I think he did them thinking that he was making it cuter or more clever than they actually ended up being. I mean, and, and you know, that's, that's another thing. Sometimes, you know, artists don't don't understand their own work and they don't understand why their own work works. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's, sometimes it's important to take an artist's hands off their own work cuz I mean, you know, the the Nutcracker suite, right. Tchaikovsky wrote that and he hated it. He absolutely hated it. He thought it was the worst thing he'd ever written. But it's a brilliant piece of work, and if he had his way, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have it. He would have burned it. <laughs> but they're like, no, 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 no. no. You're wrong about this. You need to tell. And I think in a George Lucas kind of has that same thing going. I was like, no, I I can do it better. It could be this. Like, no, T- just take your hands off, yeah. off the wheel. Jet, I can hold it. Pull up. No, I'm all right. Like the Empire Strikes Back, this episode shall conclude somewhat unresolved. Nathaniel and I continued to talk about alterations made for the Empire and Return of the Jedi special editions but you'll have to wait three years to hear that part of the conversation. Or probably two weeks. Whatever. I told Nathaniel that my problem with retconning Star Wars, or any retcon really, is that it changes your memory of the experience, but not the experience itself. I'm not sure I knew what I was saying. Big shock there. An experience is a finite thing, but the memory of an experience can stay with you for a long time. Memory changes, though. It fades. It's modified by new experiences. Comic books get retconned all the time. Usually the change is made to update a character's origin to make it more contemporary. Retcons in comics rarely bother me. I accept their inevitability, and even necessity. But if I don't like the change, I can still go back to the original comic to find the content I prefer. That's not easy to do with Star Wars, because the delivery method of the medium has changed over the decades, from VHS tape to DVD to Blu-ray to digital streaming. 
when George Lucas disavowed the original versions of the films in favor of his altered special editions, he prohibited fans' access to the original versions on DVD or Blu-ray. I don't own a tape-playing VCR anymore. I would need to get one on eBay because the 19-year-old Best Buy employee went all glassy-eyed when I asked her if they had any in stock. Until the original films are released on a new digital platform, which I expect will happen by the end of this year to coincide with the release of The Force Awakens in theaters, I can't experience classic Star Wars. I'm dependent on my memory of a version of Star Wars that I haven't seen now in nearly 20 years. Damn, 20 years. The truth is, I no longer remember what Star Wars looks like without the special edition changes. The memory of my experience with original Star Wars is too distorted, too crammed with unnecessary crap and contradictory facts, just like the special editions themselves. That is ultimately the greatest sin of the special editions. George Lucas can screw with his movies as much as he wants, but that's not all he did. He screwed with my movie, my version of Star Wars, my memory of something I loved. That really, really sucks. But... It does bother me less now that he's sold the franchise rights. I'm all but certain that the classic versions of Star Wars will be accessible on Blu-ray or digital by Christmas, and they're going right at the top of my list. I want to thank Nathaniel Wayne for appearing on this and future episodes. You can find Nathaniel's Facebook and YouTube pages under Council of Geeks and on Twitter at Council of Geeks. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to leave feedback, you can post a comment for this episode on the show's blog page at deadbothandspies.blogspot.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash deadbothandspies. You can also leave a review of the show on iTunes. Any comments left on the blog or Facebook page or iTunes may be read aloud by me in an upcoming episode, so let me know if you don't want your name or message read on the air. Also, you can contact me privately through the blog page using the contact form on the right-hand column. Dead Bath and Spies is not affiliated with Lucasfilm or Walt Disney Company, and the views expressed on this show are solely the opinion of the speaker. All music and audio clips are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use, and I make no money from this podcast, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. Until the next time, may the force. When I was in college, uh, a friend of mine, we came up with a, a list. Uh, at the time, we called it suggestive Star Wars lines. And there were lines of dialogue that, when taken out of context, would have a very sort of sexual innuendo or double entendre meaning. Today, we would call them the that's what she said lines. <laughs> um, but at the time, we were just like, they're suggestive Star Wars lines. So I kind of went back to my memory and like recalled what I thought were the five lines that we came up with. And there's, I'm sure there's more out there, but... Um, from Star Wars, from the battle at the Death Star. At that speed, will you be able to pull out in time? <laughs> <laughs> Number two, 
uh, what Red Leader says. It didn't go in, just impacted on the surface. <laughs> uh, from Empire Strikes Back, Han's line, I must have hit pretty close to the mark to get her all riled up like that, huh? <laughs> um, number four, Han's other line from Empire Strikes Back, there's an awful lot of moisture in here. <laughs> And number five from the Battle of Endor, Lando's line, don't worry, my friend's down there. 